Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Christopher Thompson, our Lex writer, and also down the line we have Sir Wynne Bishop, the chairman of the Financial Reporting Council, formerly chairman of Lloyd's Banking Group. Today we'll be discussing the return of Lloyd's to the private sector as the UK government sells the last of its shares. Secondly, a look at UBS as Singaporean investor GIC sells down its stake. And finally, we'll be going to the US where Ben McClanahan has been talking to Western Union's Libby Chambers. First, though, to that Lloyd's story. Well, Martin, it's been a long time coming, nearly a decade ago since the UK government bailed out Lloyd's Bank after it was brought to its knees by the rescue of HBOS. It's a bit of a moment, isn't it? Certainly is. Expect great fanfare both from Lloyd's and from the government. Remember, it took an over 40% stake in the bank back in 2009, as you said, after the disastrous HBOS deal. Now, the government's been able to say the taxpayers got its money back and some and made a bit of a profit of some £500 million. And I think the achievement is quite stark, particularly when you compare it to RBS, the other big British bank that was bailed out in the financial crisis, where the government still holds over 70% of that bank, and the stake is hugely underwater with no prospect of the taxpayer ever getting all their money back from that bank. Well, we are joined now by Sir Wynne Bischoff, who back in those days was the chairman of the bank. He was brought in as part of the rescue of Lloyd's. Sir Wynne, thanks very much for joining us. Do you wish you were still there to see this day when the government is selling out of its final stake? Look, one moves on, but it's obviously a terrific sense of achievement for them all. And to some extent, as a bystander now, but having been involved, for me, what has happened is a very large disposal, obviously, over a number of years. And the disposal, of course, couldn't start immediately. The bank had to get into a shape whereby investors would then think that there was, in fact, some hope of a recovery, which took some time. But since the government has been selling the shares, it's been very judicious. I think the process has been very good. The method that they've used, in my view, is an excellent one. You do an initial sale and then you feed it into the market. The market gets used to the seller being there and it's worked. Absolutely. Remind us what it was like for you back in the days when you first came in, you were a hardened banker, having been through the financial crisis at Citigroup, then you were parachuted into Lloyd's, a similarly troubled bank to Citigroup only a a year or so earlier. What did you find and how scary was it? Um, It's always difficult to compare scariness. I think the business model of Lloyd's was substantially different and perhaps not as scary as that of a truly global bank, both operating in the retail as well as the wholesale sector. Lloyd's was really very much more a retail bank. And if the finances could be fixed, its business model was one which attracts both investors, long-term investors, 
and in reputational terms probably somewhat easier, certainly at that time, than Hillsdale Bank. So I felt actually quite confident that it could be turned round as long as one had the support of a major shareholder, which we did in a 43% shareholder, which was the government. Martin, you wanted to come in. Yeah. Hi, Wynne. I just wanted to ask how much of this success story is down to the chief executive, Antonio Horta Osorio, who had some health difficulties early on in his time there, but has led this bank back to profitability, dividends, and now to the government's exit. How much is down to him personally? You know, it's always very difficult to say, but the majority of the credit obviously should always go to the CEO because he gets the majority of the anger when things go badly wrong. I think Antonio is an outstanding CEO. I'm very pleased we hired him. He came from another bank that valued him highly there. I think he's done a fantastic job. He embraced very well the business model, but also felt that the business model needed some particular aspects fixing, for example, the loan deposit ratio, the wholesale funding, etc., etc., etc. And he did that. He's a very determined person, but he's also a person who understands the retail sector very well and understands the funding and the finances of a bank very well. So I don't want to put percentages on it, but obviously the majority has to go to him and the management team that he hired. And a final one from me. When, what does the future hold for Lloyd's? It's a dominant high street bank. Some people say that now that the government is no longer there as a protector, there may be a renewed effort from the competition authorities to break it up, thinking it's got too dominant a market share. Is that an issue or how do you see its future panning out? I think it's got a market share, which in various sectors is somewhere between 20 and 25%, which obviously is a large market share. On the other hand, there are quite a number of banks around the world that have got that kind of market share in various sectors. In total terms, if you look at the finance as a whole, obviously its market share would be very, very substantially less than that. My own view is that they should leave well enough alone. I think it is important. But obviously, new competitors are coming in all the time and access to those new competitors is probably going to be improved. It's going to be a little bit like the telephone companies. I suspect that it will be made possible for new entrants to compete against people like Lloyd's, but also the other banks. Well, certainly, Mr. Hutter Osorio and his fellow bankers will be hoping you're right on that. So, Wynne, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. On to our second story of the day, a story of another sell-off. This is the GIC, the Singaporean Sovereign Wealth Fund, has sold down its stake significantly in UBS. Now, of course, GIC was one of the big investors that came in at the height of the financial crisis to help UBS. Chris, what exactly has happened? Well, what's happened is that we've seen GIC, the Singaporean Investment Fund, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, if you will, nearly halve its stake in UBS. Now, it's selling at a steep loss. It actually bought some convertible bonds in UBS back in 2007, and then it converted those. In 2010, the price was around 47 Swiss francs per share, heady days indeed, given that even now with UBS trading above its book value, which is unlike most of its peers, the shares are only at around 16 Swiss francs. Why are they crystallizing such a big loss? Well, we don't know yet. GIC won't really divulge any detail. They just talk about circumstances changing and so forth. What's odd is that UBS has transformed itself 
over the past five years pretty successfully away from being a kind of universal bank, particularly hiving off its investment bank and really focusing on its core franchise, which was the reason GIC invested in it in the beginning, which is wealth management. It has the world's biggest wealth management franchise, and that generates a steady stream of fee-based revenues, which has allowed its return on equity to hit double digits, again, unlike many of its peers. And there's a lot of investors and analysts out there who think UBS, compared to a lot of their traditional competitors, is pretty well placed and actually there's good reason to be bullish about their prospects. All the stranger then that a big investor is selling out now. Does it tell us that we shouldn't maybe be so confident about the outlook for UBS? Well, the thing which UBS has got, I mean, the thing with wealth management is that a lot of money is made on your fees, which are capital light. Therefore, you have some protection from the kind of inherently highly leveraged business cycle that is banking. So on that basis, you wouldn't conclude that the outlook is gloomy, especially given that banks since UBS made the decision really in 2011, 2012, when the current CEO came in to wind down its investment bank, or at least the non-advisory parts, and get into wealth management, its peers, other banks, have been trying to do exactly the same thing. So on that basis, I think it's hard to say that they are inherently gloomy about UBS's prospects, not least because costs have come down pretty significantly. So it is operationally geared if revenues start to increase. That is to say, it should be more profitable now if revenues increase than it was in the past. Well, we'll see whether GIC has made the right call over the months and years ahead, I suppose. Chris, thanks very much for that. Let's move on to our third topic of the day, and we go across to New York, where Ben McClanahan has been talking to Western Union. Now, when money moves across borders, there's a good chance that Western Union is taking a piece of it. The largest money service business in the world, its network of more than half a million agents in 200 countries handles transfers of about $150 billion a year. Ben has been talking to Libby Chambers, the company's chief strategy officer. Let's talk about the competitive landscape. Your number one at least in the US. Uh, the number two and number three are in merger talks and financial. The Chinese company has bid for one of them. And the number three has counterbid for the number two. It's very complicated, yeah. but how do you react to this aggressive consolidation? Yeah, story? so we're number one globally. And what's going on, you can either look at it through the lens of it's an industry consolidation play to the degree number three buys number two, or it's an extension of Ant Financial and Alibaba into primarily the U.S. market, but also Europe and all the other markets where MoneyGram and Western Union do business. And I think they see this as an access to licensing. They see it as access to a customer base, and they see it as access to sort of regulatory know-how on the ground in all these countries. And we view the two very differently. So one thing would be responding to you know consolidation in your industry and thinking through all the implications of that. The other would be more about thinking through how our product suite, how that will compete with a competitor who today isn't very far along on any of that stuff, but Mm -hmm. if they combine with Ant, they will be accelerated and and have a much stronger ability 
to hook up their infrastructure and the ant infrastructure and compete globally. And there's a big China play there, too. Mm-hmm. So we're certainly, as a management team, looking at all of these possible eventualities. I think the first thing to say is that any acquisition by ant has to go through a pretty stringent regulatory review process. Right. What's your feeling on how the government might respond? It's difficult to comment because it's obviously a new administration with different objectives. And so they haven't yet opined or ruled on any big cases. And so it's kind of hard to know what their posture Mm -hmm. is. But it will be a process that takes some time. There is a process of kind of state-by-state licensure. So none of this would kind of happen overnight, which does allow all of us to sort of take a step back and think through what our response is. An opportunity for Western Union uh, as these other two are embroiled in discussions? Well, I have to say there probably is a bit of an opportunity competitively whenever your competition is distracted. But the real thing for us, in a way, is validating the attractiveness of the category that we're in. And in a management team sense, kind of putting a lighting a fire under some of your initiatives. And since I lead product and marketing and all the things we're doing with customers, for me, it's actually provided more of a forum to talk about the things we need to be doing anyway. And just to take a step back and talk about the big macro picture, is it the case that the more flow of human capital around the world, the better it is for your business? Absolutely. And especially as we get into customer segments that are businesses, but also higher, we, we refer to them as hyperband, uh, customers that are sending high principal amounts mm-hmm. for a variety of things, whether it's education or funding a pension or buying real estate, etc. Those categories are growing faster than the traditional remittance business. And so that's where we're putting a lot of our focus. And just finally on, on Bitcoin, mm-hmm. which uh, often flashes across our screens recently because it's constantly hitting new highs, 1,786 as we go to press. Does that ramp up in the price suggest that people are taking it more seriously as, as a medium of exchange these days? I think there's Bitcoin, which it's difficult to comment on Bitcoin valuations, but blockchain, which is the platform that Bitcoin runs on. I mean, blockchain and its evolution over the last three to five years is becoming increasingly a serious prospect for any big financial institution that's doing large-scale transaction processing. And so I think whether you're an insurance company or an asset manager or a correspondent banking player or a a payments company like us, you are seeing blockchain go from a concept to actual tests, and you're seeing the requisite level of customization that is needed Mm -hmm. to make it applicable for our various segments. You're seeing those customizations happen. And you're also seeing increasingly those blockchain companies starting to be run by people with real serious banking experience, right? So people who could credibly sell that to another bank CEO as a viable solution for their transaction processing platform or their accounting requirements or their derivative settlement needs. And I think that's where you're going to really see the tipping point is when large financial institutions put in play tests that actually allow the industry to see it working in practice at scale. But some of these consortiums look to me to be quite serious and interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and to what extent is, is Western Union using blockchain-type technologies to Yeah, so transfer? we are, what I would say, we're invested in some blockchain investment pools. So we've, we've sort of invested behind some others who are invested in blockchain. But what we're also doing is evaluating on a pretty active basis how and where we might use this. We obviously settle millions of transactions every day in what our CEO likes to refer to, we have a blockchain inside Western Union, which is the way in which we settle transactions every day with our agents, you know, millions of times a day, 
And while I would think it would not in the immediate term that we'd be swapping our current settlement system out for a blockchain, we're looking at how and where we might apply it. Because the principle of blockchain is very, very interesting. And everybody who's running a big transaction processing business likes to see things that will drive costs out of the system. And how close, finally, finally, are you to offering Bitcoin in your wallets? That would be very far down the track because consumers take a long time to adopt Bitcoin as a new measure of, of currency. And certainly under the regulatory regimes that we operate in the U.S., at the EU, et cetera, we're a long way off from having Bitcoin as an accepted currency. <laughs> so the U.S. dollar is still preeminent. <laughs> U.S. dollar, the pound, the euro. I think that's more of our space for a long, long time. Libby Chambers, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Chris here in the studio, Sir Wynne Bischoff down the line, and also Ben and his guest Libby Chambers in New York. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Lauren Leatherby. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.